We're going to look at Exodus, the second part of two, uh, three, and then part of four. And if you think we're going to cover all that, you're crazy. Um, but we're hoping that we'd leave enough meat on the bone for you guys to uh, study this yourself as we go through it. Uh, just a few things I want to say before we look at our text today. First of all, we come to Exodus. I think what we're reminded of when we read this is just how much God loves a story. In fact, the whole Bible is a story. And God is making himself known through a story. In fact, it's not only a story in which he is the author, but it's a story in which he participates. The story itself, the God of the universe, enters. So I want us to realize that when we read these random stories or isolated stories in the Bible, don't read them that way. Realize that all the stories of the Bible are all pointing us to the one big story of the Bible. And it's this one big story of the Bible that explains everything. It explains the world we live in. It explains why it's bad. It explains why it's good. It explains the difficult realities like evil and suffering. It explains the big questions like, where did we come from? And and where are we going? And, And where's all of history moving to? And at the heart of it, it explains God. It explains who God is, what God is doing, and has been doing, and will do to make everything right. I mean, to explain what I'm talking about, um, just think about the very first act of the biblical story. I mean, basically, at creation, there are two realities, and what are they? In the beginning, God... That's one reality. And what's the other reality that's present? Chaos. The tohu vebohu. And see, Genesis 1 wants us to see this because God creating is God unleashing his rule upon chaos and bringing about shalom. In fact, it's shalom, shalom. And shalom is everything in perfect order, perfect harmony, It's a reality that's infused with purpose and meaning and value and overflowing with joy. And hopefully that just described your reality right now. That's shalom. And in the Bible, shalom the chaos has a name. What's it called? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is when God breaks in, when God pushes back chaos, when he restores shalom. It's the lame walking, it's the blind seeing, it's the deaf hearing, it's the dead being raised. That Jesus' whole message was what? The kingdom of heaven. That's what he preached every time he preached. And see, I don't know if we're preaching Jesus' message. Because the gospel is not just justification by faith alone so that you and I can go to heaven. It's a part of it. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom. It's the good news that God will not allow his creation to descend completely into chaos. It's the good news that God will address evil and the evil one who causes chaos. It's it's that God's going to bring shalom and wholeness to to a people in chaos. It's the good news that God is going to restore all things, that everything that is wrong and has gone wrong will be made right. And that should cause us to dance. Okay, because we get fired up at football games. 
But I'm telling you what I just said, if that doesn't light a fire in your gut, then I wonder, are we participating in the kingdom of heaven? Because Exodus, as we read this, I want you to know, is this story. It's the story of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's the story that God is our king, that God is unleashing his kingdom upon the tohu Bohu, just as he did in Genesis. It's God moving into that chaos and God rescuing the people from that chaos so that he can partner with that people to bring shalom to chaos in our world. And what I just described, people say, what's the vision of Crossroads? It's that. Right there. So, because it's a story, and before we dive into this story, it demands three things. Number one, this is your story. It's your story. So drink it in. These are your people. This is your side, the side that you're on. This is your God. Let this story, as opposed to the story of the American dream or, or all the other stories that our world wants to throw at you, let this story define you and shape you and tell you who you are and why you're here. Take the story in. Number two, because it's a story, live this story out. We need to stop just learning about the stories and exegeting the stories. We need to join the story. Join it. Join it. Because I'll tell you right now, we are the continuation of Exodus. Exodus goes all the way through the Old Testament. It goes through the Gospels. It goes through the book of Acts. And can someone right now turn to Acts 29? Let's do Bible drill right now. Acts 29. Some of you guys were staying up way too late last night watching a football game. Come on. Acts 29. Let's go. That's how I coach my football players every week. I still got it. You know what? It's not there. Why not? We're it. We are X-29. I'm going to tell you something. We don't just know this message. We are the message. We're the message. And so because it's a story, we take the story in. We live the story out. Finally, we cheer the story on. Oh, I see you guys cheer at football games. I see you cheer at basketball games. There's nothing more exciting than the kingdom of heaven that's being unleashed right now to bring shalom to chaos in the city of Grand Rapids. And Christians are a bunch of deadbeats. But we're not because we can get so fired up at a football game. Who's fired up right now about the kingdom of heaven? Woo! Thank you. Thank you. All right, with that being said, sorry, Greg, I'm going to be a little long because of that introduction today. I'm just going to tell you that, okay, dude? Okay, um, let's get to our text, all right? <laughs> I owe him so many steak dinners. We have this deal. It's like I get 45 minutes. I promise you, Greg, I'll be done in 45 minutes. Otherwise, I'll pay you a steak dinner. I owe him 20 or 30 at least, all right? <laughs> so you talk about grace. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> all right. Exodus 2, um, Neil loves to break these preaching things down in these big, large chunks, which I appreciate because it forces us not to lose, you know, the forest from the trees, but it also is impossible to preach it all. Um, my text is really starting at chapter 11, or verse 11 of chapter 2, going through 4, 
verse 17. But let's stand and read verse 23 of chapter 2. Now I'm going to keep reading. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. And so it just so happened that Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is also called what? Mount Sinai. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, well, I'll go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, Moses said, Hineni, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your dad. I just love that. He starts with his dad. I am the God of your dad. I'm also the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, mosquito bites, parasites, (laughs) all of that, okay? All right, this is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, as you guys learned last week, Exodus, like Genesis, begins with what? Chaos. And this time, it's not a world that's in chaos, but it's a people that's in chaos, a people who are oppressed. And what we need to know about Egypt today, at least, is that Egypt at this time is the world's great superpower, very much like the United States is today. It's the cultural center, it's the educational center, it's the commercial center of the world. And so people groups from all over the world would settle there because it promised comfort and prosperity. I mean, that Nile River meant that there was always, always going to be an abundance of food. There's always going to be a thriving economy. But what I want us to know this morning as it pertains to Egypt is that Egypt in the Bible is more than a place. Egypt is a worldview. Like Neil said last week, it's Darwinism. And Darwinism is this survival of the fittest, the strongest, the wealthiest, the prettiest. It's really the American dream. It's the promise of prosperity and comfort and luxury to those who can afford it. Now listen, while this looks so good on the appearance, think about it when it comes to prosperity. 
The more we have, the more we want. The more we want, the more we need, the more we need, the more miserable we become, the higher our expectations are, the more stressed out we become, the more we worry, the more we live to hoard and to have. And our lives become very meaningless, almost bankrupt. Add to this that all that Egypt promises always comes at a great cost. Because who wins in Egypt? Who wins in a Darwinistic system? It's the strong. And the strong win by praying on the weak. That's how the game is played. I rise up by trampling on the backs of lesser people. And so Pharaoh comes to epitomize this worldview. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered so many depictions of Pharaoh. And I want to just show you these. I don't know if you can see that, but that's Pharaoh. Always with a big stick in his hand. Always got someone by the hair. Left hand, someone by the hair. Right hand stick. Look at these things. They're all over. They're all over the place. That's how Pharaoh wants to be known. Right there. I just find this to be so the antithesis of God in his heart, isn't it? Egypt in, in, in Hebrew, does anybody know the term? We need to get this term because we're going to be studying this book for a long time. It's, it's, every time in, it, you see Egypt, it's in Hebrew, it's, it's the word Mitzraim. Mitzraim means to be walled in. It means bondage. This is why in the Bible, Egypt is often referred to as the house of bondage. Now, what I want us to know, though, while Israel has been in Mitzrayim for 400 years, it's really only the last generation that experienced the injustice and the oppression. So for their first 350 years in Egypt, you need to know, Israel was well-fed, she was comfortable, she was prosperous, she was living the Egyptian dream. She was. In fact, Goshen, the place where they settled, is easily the most fertile land in all of Egypt. And here's what the Bible wants us to know. Mitzrayim, Egypt, is more than the slavery of injustice. It's more than the labor of more bricks without straw. It's the slavery that's produced by prosperity and success. It's that slavery that comes as a result of having a nice, comfortable, middle-class existence. Which causes people to grow spiritually dull because of the luxuries and the privileges that prosperity bring. And I'm going to tell you, this kind of bondage can be the most enslaving. Because as Israel grew content with comfort and the luxuries of Egypt, Israel forgot who she was. She forgot about her spiritual heritage, the promised land, and she forgot about her mission, which is to be a light to the nations. And so Egypt, as a worldview, as a place, is a powerful force, and I want you to see, the text wants us to see, that even someone like Moses is infected with it. And you have to ask yourself, of course, why wouldn't he be? I mean, he grew up in Pharaoh's palace. But we see this in chapter 2, 11 through 12. We didn't read this, but look at it. 
One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing that no one was seeing him, he killed, he struck, it literally says he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That's Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets what he wants with his big stick by striking people. Moses gets what he wants with his big stick by striking people. Now, in my opinion, one of the reasons why God chooses Moses is because Moses, you can see from this text, has a heart for the oppressed. He hears the cry of his people, and Moses acts. Moses does something about it. However, we will never, ever bring the kingdom of heaven through a stick. Ever. And if you ask why, why God allowed for Moses to spend 40 precious years of his life in a desert, it's going to be the same reason why God's going to put his people for 40 years in the desert. Because God, in redeeming his people, has two challenges. One, he has to get God's people out of Egypt. But the bigger challenge is he has to get Egypt out of his people. Same with Moses. I mean, this guy grew up in Pharaoh's house as a prince. And God, what God has to do is he has to get Pharaoh's stick out of Moses' hand and he has to replace it with a different kind of stick. What kind of stick is that? A shepherd's stick. Now, if you want to know the meaning of, of, of the kingdom of heaven, read and understand the book of Exodus. Because the kingdom of heaven always starts with who? God. If you want a definition of the kingdom of heaven, look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's a beautiful definition of the kingdom of heaven. And that's just a repeat of the last uh, verse and a half of chapter 2. Where it says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out. Their cry of help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God looked on them and was concerned about them. And I love verse 8, how verse 8 finishes verse 7. It says, so... God says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good... Oh, that's the kingdom of heaven, you guys. And it starts with this. It starts with God, and it starts with God seeing their pain. He sees it. And I think right now we all kind of have some idea about oppression, uh, we know about abuse. We, we know about things like apartheid and, and, and holocaust. It's one thing to know about those things. It's another thing to personally see it. God sees it. Not only does he see it, it says God heard their cry. 
In Hebrew, the word for cry here, we've, we've studied this before. Does anybody think they know what it is? It's the Hebrew word ze'akah. Ze'akah is a spe- specific kind of cry. It's this intense crying, or better yet, the screams of the oppressed. In fact, the first time Zedekah is used in the Bible is Abel's blood. Abel's blood, Zedekah, it screamed up to God. The next time is, is Sodom. And God says, when I looked down on Sodom, I heard her screams. And what were her screams? If you go to uh, Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, um, you'll see that it's more than just the sexual immorality there, but the sexual immorality is produced by a deeper root problem. God says Sodom was well-fed, comfortable, and had no concern for the poor and the widow and the orphan. And I heard their cries, and I came down. See, our God is a God who hears the cries of those in pain. He hears the screams of the oppressed. It's so his heart. In Psalm 34, it says God is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And if you want to know how passionate God is about the cries of the oppressed, in Exodus 22, after God takes his people and rescues them, he looks them in the eye and says... If you do not take care of the poor and the widow and the orphan, and I hear those cries from your people, I'll come down, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. So God hears the cries. God sees the suffering. And maybe my favorite part of this kingdom definition that's in verse 7 and 8 is it says that God was concerned and I'll tell you right now, I, I want to be really respectful. I want you guys to have a lot of confidence in your English translation of the Bible, but this is a pathetically weak translation. And God was concerned for them. The Hebrew word for concern here is the word yada. In fact, it's how chapter 2 ends. It, chapter 2 ends with, and God yada. Anybody remember what yada means? Yada, 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 yada. Well, it, it, it means to know. But it's a specific kind of knowing because it comes from the root word yad, which means hand. So yada is this specific kind of knowing that comes through touch. It's a knowledge that comes through our senses, through the hearing and through seeing. It's this intensely personal kind of knowledge. In fact, the first usage of the word yada is, and Adam yada Eve and begat Cain. It's to know something by becoming one with that thing. God sees their affliction. God hears their screams. And God yet does. He becomes one with them in their suffering. 
Their cries are his cries. Their pain is his pain. Their screams are his screams. And this is all what's behind God coming down, which is the whole message of the Bible. God not only sees our chaos, he not only hears our screams, he becomes one with us in our chaos. He comes down and he literally enters it, and that is the kingdom of heaven. And you and I know where this whole story is going because we get to read the Gospels and we get to see Jesus showing up and saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God hears in Jesus. God sees in Jesus. God comes down in Jesus. God enters our chaos in Jesus. And and just look at Jesus. I mean, you read the Gospels and you always see Jesus gravitating towards the hurting, towards those in chaos. He's always crying. He's always weeping. And then think about how his life ends and how he cried out in a long, vo- loud voice. I mean, he literally screamed to the Father. And he's not only screaming our screams, but this is the only time in the Bible where God hears the zekah of the oppressed and does nothing about it. God just turns his face. I don't know what causes you to zekah. I don't know what causes you to cry. I don't know what causes even some of you to scream. But I know this. God is one with you in your cancer. He intimately knows and feels the heartache of losing a loved one. He knows what it feels like to be abused, to be oppressed. God hears God sees, God yadas, and God comes down. And that's the gospel of the kingdom. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Moses led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. <laughs> That, that one verse right there is, uh, is a foreshadowing of what is about to come. I mean, here's Moses. He's leading his flock to Horeb, the mountain of God. And that is exactly what God is going to do. He's going to use this instrument, Moses. And through Moses, he's going to shepherd his flock, Israel, to the mountain of God. That's all going to be part of the Exodus story. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come. But what I want us to see right now is Moses. I want us to see that here is Moses living this unflattering, less than ordinary life, secluded in a desert as a Bedouin. Horeb, by the way, does anybody know what Horeb means? Horeb means wasteland. I want to show you a PowerPoint. I don't know if you guys were able to get this in video form. Were you? Yes or no? If you guys can, someone turn the lights off back there. Just watch the picture.
for 40 years. God says, Moses, walk in front of sheep. Now Moses, during this 40 years, is probably just thinking that his life came to a complete dead end. What he probably doesn't know is that God is really just preparing him. But here's the deal. Moses, like all of us, needed to be humbled. Moses, like all of us, needed to be made weak and barren. And it's a hard place to learn humility living in Egypt. Especially being a prince in Pharaoh's palace. God's going to say about his people in Deuteronomy 8, he's going to say, I led you these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you in order so I could know what is in your heart and so that you would learn to follow me and you would learn that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that doesn't just apply to Moses or to Israel. You could put Moses' name in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 4. So Moses, I led you into the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you and to test you to see what's in your heart. Because at the end of the day, God doesn't need a pharaoh to get his purposes accomplished. God is looking for shepherds. And I'll tell you this, I've lived in that part of the world to know that you will never see a Middle Eastern Bedouin ever, ever hit their sheep. They lead their sheep like you saw in the video, and they lead with their voice. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep, they follow me. And they know my voice. So it's in this barren desert that Moses really encounters something quite strange. I mean, I think this thing just messes with him. Look at verse 3. Or verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over to see this strange sight as to why the bush does not burn up. Moses could have just stayed on his course that day. But verse 3, what it, how it really literally reads, it says, So Moses thought, I will turn aside and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And then verse 4 should read, When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside and gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. In other words, what the text, I think, wants us to see, that for Moses to encounter God that day, Moses had to turn aside. He had to literally get off his path and get on another path. And this really is a micro turning aside for Moses. It's a micro detour because his life has been, for the last 40 years, on this macro detour, this macro turning aside. Because you know anything about Moses, his first life is spent 40 years in, in Pharaoh's pa- palace as a prince. God has to knock him off that path. He has to provide a detour so he can have Moses for the next 40 years in the desert. And now it's at this end of Moses' second life in the desert that God provides another detour. This time it's the burning bush. And this burning bush encounter with God is going to change Moses forever. 
But for Moses to be changed, Moses must step aside. He must step aside from his normal, comfortable path. And when he does so, what does he get? He gets a burning bush. A real encounter with the real living God. Now, what's the burning bush? Well, the first thing I want us to see, it's, it's what the text wants us to see. It's, it's, it's not some great, huge tree. It's just a bush. It's an ordinary little desert bush. And even a bush on fire wouldn't be that out of the ordinary. But the fact that this little bush was burning, but not being consumed, now that's extraordinary. And see, with this one little picture... God is communicating, I think, the whole meaning of Exodus, that God, who is this consuming fire, he's going to take a less than ordinary people, a little, little desert bush, and he's going to dwell with them without consuming them. Or just like this mountain, Horeb. There's nothing special about this mountain. It's not bigger, it's not more spectacular than any of the other mountains. In fact, Horeb, as I mentioned, means wasteland. God's going to take this less than ordinary mountain called Wasteland and turn it into the mountain of God. Just like he's going to take Moses, this irrelevant shepherd, living an irrelevant, less than ordinary, barren life, and he's going to use them towards great ends. Because as I've mentioned, one of the key words that we're going to see in in the book of Exodus that's used over and over again is this word yada. And not only does God yada us, but he wants us to yada him. Which means he doesn't want us to just know about him or just have right doctrine or right thinking about him. But he actually wants us to know him. For us to encounter him. Where we can say, my eyes have seen My ears have heard. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Can you say that today about God? Not that you just know about him, but that you know him. In fact, you know the chief characteristic of Pharaoh? Exodus 5 verse 2 says, And Pharaoh did not yada me. He didn't know me. He knew about me, but he didn't know me. You know, the chief characteristic that's going to be said about God's people over and over again throughout Exodus, it's Exodus 6 verse 7, it's Exodus 7 verse 17, it's, it's, it's associated with every plague that God does. It, it's that, I'm going to do this so that Israel will yada me. They're going to know me. How many of you have had a burning bush encounter with the living God? And I'm not just talking about some emotional experience, but I'm not going to take emotion out of that. But how many of us have really had this this real experience with a real God? We can say, I've tasted, I've seen. We can personally give testimony where God, he heard my cry. He turned to me. He lifted me up out of my chaos. Can you say that today? I 
I think part of the reason why some of us don't have this kind of relationship with God is because our relationship with God is not marked by fire. It's not marked by encounter. Because what we reduce God to is a doctrine. God is nothing more than a doctrine, or God is nothing more than an idea. And I want to say to that, are you kidding me? I don't want to take that out of the equation. But he is not ever to be reduced to just a doctrine or an idea or a worldview. He is a passionate, personal God who wants to be known passionately and personally. Yada. I'm going to tell you, I don't think we will ever have encounters with the living God unless, like Moses, we are willing to turn aside and take detours and have our, mess, and have our plans and our lives messed with a little bit. Unless we're willing to step away from our busy lives, unless we're willing to go to the desert. And what do I mean by the desert? Desert are those difficult and tough places where we get stripped of our comfort and our leisure, where we actually have to stop and listen. Where we're stripped of all things Egypt and all things Pharaoh, where our identity can't be rooted in those things anymore. And we're just kind of left bare. Do you have that in your life? Do you have burning bush experiences, real encounters with the real God? You're not going to get them unless you step aside. And here's how you know, too, if, if you've had a real encounter with the real living God, because you see this in the Bible every time, whether it's an Abraham or a Moses or a Samuel or a Paul or Mary at, at, at the resurrection. It's Abraham, Abraham. Now go, Leclaca, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob. Now go, Paul, Paul. Now go, I'm sending you. Look at verses 9 and 10, chapter 3. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So Moses, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. We encounter him so that we can be sent by him. In fact, this, this Moses, Moses, this doubling, I think, tells Moses that God is about to do something massive. And it, it, it's really God telling Moses, Moses, I'm going to call you to something that's so way beyond you. It's something so way too big for anything that you could ever do yourself. And what is this great thing? Well, look at verse 8. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land. (laughs) That's awesome. God is going to rescue his people from slavery. Verse 17, it's repeated again. So great will this whole thing be when you continue reading the rest of the chapter is that the Egyptians themselves are going to look at God's people with such favor in their eyes. And as God's people leave... Um, Israel's going to plunder them of their gold and silver because they're going to say, take it, take it. 
I'm going to tell you something. When God gives us a new life, he always gives us a new path. And the path is never something that we could walk through our own strength. It's never something that we could do in and of ourselves. It's always going to be a path that's so way beyond us. Way too big for us. I'd love an amen to that because I'd love to know that you know what I'm talking about. Now, if Moses is anything like us, right, he's probably going to object, right? I've, I've objected to God so many times in my life. I'm like, time out on that, God. I'm not doing that. Look at Moses' objection. You keep reading this, and, and, and one of his first objections is, okay, God, um, would you tell me, what is your name? Remember, a name in Hebrew is, is more than just a, a label. It tells us the essence of who that person is. And so when he asks God, what is your name? In, in, in essence, what Moses is asking is, God, who are you? And I think when Moses, in, in, in asking this question, is, is, is admitting something, is God, at this point in the game, I don't know you, and not only do I not know you, but my people don't know you either. So God gives him his name. God says, I am who I am. My name is I am. In Hebrew, it's four letters. It's yod Hey vav Hey. Jews to this day call this the unutterable or expressible name of God. Because this name to them, it's too holy. You don't profane it, so you never say it. Except on Yom Kippur. Now, they translate this name Adonai, which your Bibles then translate Lord in capital letters. So anytime you see L-O-R-D, Lord, um, the Hebrew behind it is yod Hey vav Hey Yahweh, how we try to say it, or Yahweh. And what God is saying about himself through his name is pretty much, I'm not what you want me to be, Moses. I'm not going to be your wish fulfillment. I am who I am. I is what I is. Or it could almost better be translated, I will be what I will be. And see, when you understand this name in light of the context that God gives his name, what God is saying to Moses is really something incredibly profound. He's saying, Moses, I am right now what I was. And what I am right now, I will be in the future. So Moses, know me right now, because I will be the same God to you that I was to your dad, and I was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I say, oh, that just, if I can get my mind around that, that is awesome. Because that means God is everything right now to us that he has been in the past. That everything that God has been to my dad, everything he's been to my grandpa, everything he's been to all the people who've walked before us in the Bible, he's going to be that to me. It's awesome. And not only is he going to be that to me and to you right now, but he promises to be that to us in the future so that when we have troubles and we experience loss and even have to face death itself, that he's going to be everything then that he is right now. 
I am who I am. And I will be what I will be. Don't you see that when you have that in your life, how anchored your life becomes? But Moses doesn't stop objecting. I love his his first objection. It's, okay, God, like, who am I that you would use me? In other words, I think he's saying to God, God, I think this is a great plan. The problem is you got the wrong person. I'm not qualified. And what does God say? Moses, I'll be with you. But see, this thing gets so much momentum in Moses' heart. And I want us to see that this is not just false humility in in Moses. This is what 40 years in the desert does to a person. It humbles them. This is why the Bible says about Moses, he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. This isn't false humility. This isn't Moses even really being rebellious. I mean, I think in his heart of hearts, he thinks God can do a whole lot better. Because then he says, God, okay, what if I decide this and the people just laugh at me and they don't listen to me? Then what, God? And God again says, Moses, I will be with you, Moses. And then Moses goes to his greatest insecurity. And I'm going to give you a heads up. This pricks my heart. Because I've had a lifelong struggle with this same insecurity. Moses says to God, I can't speak. I'm really sorry. I hate to do this. When I was a college student, I really felt the call of God in my life. That's what I said to him. I can't speak. I remember my first, my first uh, speech class at Whedon. I'm not kidding you. There were seven people in the class. I don't know why I showed up for my speech with shorts on. But my legs were just shaking like this. My hands were going like this. My tongue got so tongue-tied. And I'm thinking, I still have seven minutes to go. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And this girl came up to me afterward. And she had this spiked hair. And and I'm kind of still a freshman. And I'm thinking of myself as this former three-sport athlete. And she's a little bit, in my eyes, nerdy. And she comes up to me. She says, it's going to be okay. And I remember, like, just feeling this big, walking home and saying, God... Don't do it. I remember my first youth group. 20 kids sitting out there. I couldn't stand in front of them. I had to sit. The whole time I was like, I can't speak. I feel it all the time, even to this day, I can't speak. I can't, I can't, I can't. I'm incapable. How many of you feel that today? How many of you know that? I can't do this. I can't be a good parent. I'm incapable of, of being this. I'm incapable of doing that. Especially when we know that what God is calling us to is so awesome. I'll tell you something. These are exactly the kind of people God uses. Feeling unqualified 
is the very thing that qualifies us with God. Because what God wants to find is not the superstar. God wants to find the most weak and the most barren person who knows they're weak and barren. Because the God of the Bible is not only a God who hears the cry of the weak, but he's also a God who uses the weak. Because the whole thing is not going to be about the greatness of Moses. Just like the whole thing right now of which we're a part of, of bringing shalom to chaos. It's not about the greatness of us or any person. It's all about the greatness of God. He's the great one. Do you know the story of David and Goliath? To me, it's the whole message of the whole Bible. God taking the little to shame the big. God taking the less than ordinary and doing something impossible. And see, what God is looking for today is he's looking for little Davids who are going to run to the battle of impossibility, not because they think so highly of themselves, but because they know a great and awesome God. He's big, he's big, and he's doing a big thing in our world. Do you know him? Have you encountered him? Have you heard his call? Let me end with this. Do you know why God can use little pathetic me and little ordinary you and use us to great ends? It's not because we possess some wise principles or have these profound how-tos to influence our world. It's because we possess a power. It's the fire of God. It's the power of his very presence in our lives. And it's the presence of verse 6 that says, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Afraid there actually means terrified. He's horrified. Why? Because we're talking about the holy creator and ruler of the universe. And when God's manifest presence always shows up, and a lot of times it's, it's in the form of fire, and he is a consuming fire, we're talking about the awesome presence of God. And even verse 5 says, okay, Moses, take off your sandals. And Moses needs to take off his sandals because God's saying, now, Moses, you are in the danger zone. Kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where, where Moses, or Isaiah is in the presence of God. And all he can say is, woe is me, I'm ruined. Do you know this God? Have you encountered him? Not the God of your liking, not the God that you have fashioned yourself but the God that is, who says, I am what I am. Now, the biggest mystery of the burning bush is not why the bush is not burning up or being consumed. The biggest mystery of the burning bush is why Moses, who's in the danger zone, is not consumed. And why isn't he? Who's in the midst of the fire? The angel of the Lord. The same angel that's going to walk with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, that physical fire, and he's going to hide them, and he's going to, he's going to cover them. It's the same angel of the Lord who is now 
covering and, and, and hiding and protecting Moses as he's in the presence of an all-consuming fire. For this reason, Moses' life is spared. And we know that this angel is Christ because he will show up on this earth and he's going to say before Abraham was, I am. Yodhe vavhe. And Jesus said to his disciples one day, I have a baptism of fire to undergo. And that's exactly what he did. He had a baptism where he was immersed in the fire of God, the consuming fire of God, and it destroyed him. It consumed him so that the God of the universe would not consume and destroy us, but instead God could just take us into himself. We could be hidden by him. In Hebrews 12, 29, I just want to end with this verse. It says, He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably and with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And he's in us. Take this unshakable kingdom in, live this unshakable kingdom out, and cheer this unshakable kingdom on. Let's pray. God, it was Jim Elliott who you used profoundly, Lord, in many students' lives who then became missionaries because of Jim Elliott's life, and it was his prayer where he said, God, make me a burning bush. Light these idle sticks of my life and let me burn for thee. I seek not a long life, but a full one for you, Christ, and your kingdom.